Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this episode, we're talking once again about the CTSI Symposium, this time with interviews from the event which our team attended earlier this week. As was clear from our last episode, the symposium is a really important opportunity for the trading standards profession to come together and share ideas, expertise and knowledge. It also gives colleagues across the consumer protection spectrum a chance to celebrate their achievements over the previous 12 months and to look ahead to the challenges that trading standards will face in the future. At this year's event, a sense of solidarity, professionalism and good humour were very much on display and even the somewhat dreary Brighton weather did little to dampen the spirits of those in attendance. The packed three-day schedule featured far too much to squeeze into one episode, but we've picked some of the main highlights, and a series of video interviews and other symposium-related content will be published on the Journal of Trading Standards website over the coming weeks. The symposium, of course, wouldn't be possible but for the sponsors. Thanks must go to Stericycle, Truecall, Wagtail, the CTSI College of Fellows and Business Companion for their contributions and in particular to main sponsor Status International for their unwavering and staunch support of this essential annual event. In this podcast, we'll hear the keynote address from Consumer Protection Minister Kelly Tolhurst and a rousing and thought-provoking speech from NTS Chair Lord Toby Harris. We'll also hear from CTSI Chair David Riley about the main issues he has confronted during his tenure and a presentation from Chief Executive of the Office for Product Safety and Standards, Graham Russell about the big regulatory challenges facing consumer protection across the board. Finally, we had the privilege of speaking to Margaret Brotheridge, whose father, Den Brotheridge, was a Weights and Measures inspector and the first Allied serviceman to be killed during the D-Day landings of 1944. Margaret was the guest of honour at this year's symposium and she offered some inspiring words to those who are rightly proud to serve as trading standards professionals. To get things rolling, here's CTSI Head of Policy Craig McClue speaking at the plenary session on day one to introduce us to Symposium and give us his views on the local and national enforcement framework. Our Symposium theme is is Stronger Together. As a theme, it couldn't be more apt. Uh, It's a theme of unity and of coming together. And I think that's a particularly important theme when we, we consider the wider, more divisive debates that we have at the moment, particularly around Brexit. From our point of view, the landscape changes of 2012 were really very important in plugging the enforcement gap and bringing enforcement and consumer policy partners together. I think it's important that whatever we decide in our review of the new framework, that we don't undo all the good work that has previously taken place. And I think, secondly and crucially, When we ask the question, how should national and local work best together, they can only do so if we both exist. And at the moment, the severe cuts that have been faced by local services in particular is undoubtedly leading to a bit of an existential threat in some areas. So whatever work we do on uh, the white paper that's expected, I think that that needs to be one of of the, the key aspects of it. Following Craig McClue's opening remarks, the Minister for Small Business, Consumers and Corporate Responsibility, Kelly Tolhurst MP, took to the stage to give the keynote address at this year's symposium. The UK's consumer protection regime is among the most robust in the world. We have done so much to strengthen consumer rights and access to redress when things go wrong which is something of which we can rightly be proud of and which we want to maintain after we exit the EU. 
I recognise, however, that these protections are only as valuable as the effectiveness of their enforcement. That is why enforcement is one of my key priorities. Effective enforcement also makes a valuable contribution to our economy. You simply cannot have a level playing field without rules that are clear, rules that are fair and rules that are properly enforced. We have taken positive steps to ensure a strong enforcement regime. National Trading Standards and Trading Standards Scotland were created in 2012 to ensure we were better able to tackle national and cross-border issues and much has been achieved as a result. Since it became fully operational in 2014, national trading standards have funded projects led by trading standards that have tackled £785 million worth of consumer and business detriment. Other successes include there are by no means limited to handing down prison sentences totaling 64 years and 11 months and taking over £92.8 million worth of unsafe goods out of the supply chain in 2000-2019 alone. One of the key benefits of this system has been the way it has, has reinforced the connection between local and national level enabling it to use the intelligence derived locally to deliver large-scale enforcement operations. You in this room are at the forefront of, the, of this enforcement regime and can be immensely proud of the work that you do. We have also taken other significant steps forward, providing consumers with further protection with the launch of the Office of Product Safety and Standards last year. We are providing OPSS with £12 million of funding for product safety each year. Since its creation, OPSS has built an effective partnership with Trading Standards to strengthen the way we deliver product safety enforcement both nationally and locally. OPSS is providing funding to allow you to carry out more testing of products. Over 600,000 is being made available this year for product safety testing through local authority laboratories. It is providing more specialist training on product safety. Over 700 trading standards officers received OPSS training last year, and it has provided you with access to hundreds of technical British standards free of charge. This really is a national-local partnership, and the role that you play in enforcing product safety in your local areas is critical to keeping our communities safe. OPSS is also developing better tools for trading standards to use. We have invested significantly in a new product safety database that will help you to manage incidents and to share information more easily. I appreciate the input Trading Standards officers have had in the development of the new database and I expect that some of you are already using it and it is now being rolled out across the country. I hope that you are already seeing the benefits of the national leadership that OPSS is bringing and there is more to come. Through its strategic research programme, OPSS is commissioning strategic science-based research to strengthen the evidence base and support enforcement. Last year, OPSS worked with its partners to deliver consumer safety campaigns on lasers, toys, fancy dress and firework safety. That reached over 2 million people. This year, there are plans to do even more. And I want to reassure the meteorologists in the room that OPSS is not only focused 
on product safety. We recognise the importance of accurate measurements for consumers, weights and measures, regulations, providing a fundamental protection for consumers, and OPSS is working with trading standards to ensure we have the capability we need to deliver effectively. There is much to celebrate about the protections that consumers benefit from and the enforcement of those protections that you in this room provide. But there is no reason to get complacent and rest on our laurels. That is why we have sought views on how we can further strengthen our public enforcement system in our consumer green paper. The response to the Green Paper showed that people are clearly interested. We had over 70 responses to questions about enforcement. Around half of those were from representatives of trading standards community, with the rest coming from business, trade associations and third sectors and individuals. These represented a wide range of views on the state of enforcement, which went beyond the exam question we set out, which was about uh, getting local and national enforcers to work together effectively. One thing that did come over loud and clear was the concern of the impact of the spending cuts on the resilience and sustainability of local trading standards at a time when enforcers have to face up to the new challenges of online and e-crime. I absolutely recognise the pressures you're under, given how important and impactful your work is. We need to continue this dialogue as we consult in the upcoming Consumer White Paper. The White Paper is a key part of government's industrial strategy. It continues to work on the long-term plan set out in the Green Paper to ensure that we have a competition regime and a consumer protection framework that works together in the interests of consumers. For me, that means making sure that we have, consumer, we have a consumer enforcement regime that builds on the best of what we already have, where our enforcement regime is equipped to respond effectively to emerging types of consumer harm, ensuring that we keep up the momentum on our work to protect consumers and strengthen our enforcement regime is especially important in the light of Brexit. I know that the continuing uncertainty can make lives very difficult for those of you working on the front line, and I would like to thank you for your continued hard work and dedication to protect consumers now and as we leave the EU. We remain committed to ensuring the best possible outcome for consumers as we leave the EU. Our preparations have been greatly helped by the contribution of those here. Let me thank all of you involved in the CTSI Brexit think tank for the work they have done, such as the report published last year. Your contributions have been vital in our EU exit preparations. Lastly, attending your event today provides me with the opportunity to mention we are at the start of one of our key annual consumer campaigns, Scams Awareness, which launches today. This annual campaign, which brings together our consumer protection partners in taking a united stand against scams, continues to go from strength to strength. The number of participants, many of you here today, have doubled over the past five years. Campaigns like this are so important in helping raise awareness and to educate and protect people from falling victims to scams. This is particularly important for those most vulnerable in our society who are seen as easy targets by the scammers. If we all act to encourage victims to speak up, and I know that is not easy, 
we can ensure that crimes are reported. Perpetrators are brought to justice and we can help to prevent other people falling victim in the future. But let's not forget that if consumers' trust and confidence is broken through being scammed, it's also the legitimate business community that suffers as a result. The vast majority of businesses in this country do trade legitimately, do treat their consumers fairly, and do not set out to defraud or scam people. They should not suffer as a result of scams. So I want to applaud and thank all those training standards officers up and down the country who will be taking part in scam awareness over the next two weeks, partnering with organisations such as Citizens Advice, the police and others which will help spread the message to consumers and help to safeguard the most vulnerable and susceptible to scams. I also want to mention and pay tribute to Martin Lewis for funding the Scams Action Project being delivered by Citizens Advice. This will further help the ever-growing number of people falling victim to online scams and help those who have suffered to get back on their feet. Last year, we started a dialogue about strengthening our system of public enforcement in the consumer green paper. This year, we are keen to continue this dialogue through the consultation in the consumer white paper. I want to hear your views on those proposals when they are published, and I hope you will take the opportunity to engage in that conversation, because we are listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing your responses. Finally, I want to thank you again for inviting me here today and I hope you will have a very lively and engaging and successful day and week. But to finish off, we do very much thank all of the officers and everybody that's working throughout the country nationally to make sure that consumers are given the information, are um, helped along the way and for the enforcement activity that you do. And I am very much in the department are very much committed to making sure that any particular proposals within the consumer white paper are proposals that um, you will be able to engage with and that you will see that we are listening to the concerns of you as a community and that we can work together to make sure that we strengthen what we've got and make sure that we are able to deliver and continue to deliver properly for consumers. So thank you. Next on stage at day one's plenary was Lord Toby Harris, Chair of National Trading Standards. As you'll hear, he offered a robust defence of the profession and its interests and was forthcoming about the frustrations he has encountered during his tenure. It is a particular pleasure to follow uh, Kelly Tolhurst uh, because since her appointment as Minister for Consumer Affairs, she has shown a genuine and real interest in trading standards and consumer protection issues. I have to say, of course, that I think she's the sixth minister, by my count, and uh, I may have missed one, uh, that I've dealt with during my time as Chair of National Trading Standards. On average, that's a new one every 372 days. Like they used to say about buses, there'll be another one along in a minute. So when, a minister, when we have a minister who is genuinely supportive, there is a temptation to want to hold on to them, even if it affects their promotion prospects. Now, I last spoke to this event... It's so long ago, it was called the Trading Standards Conference then, um, in 2013, shortly after I was appointed as chair of NTS. 
And as my three times renewed contract comes to an end in a few months' time, this is likely to be my final appearance. I said in 2013 that I was impressed by the commitment, the enthusiasm, the desire to make a difference of trading standards professionals and personnel around the country. And despite the resource constraints that were being faced even then. But those constraints have, in fact, become worse since then. I'm very aware that you have faced cuts of 60% over the last five years. The Labour Party carried out a health check of trading standards in August last year. That found that spending on trading standards had fallen from £213 million in 2009 to £105 million in 2018-19. That is, budgets had more than halved in that time. And that between 2009 and 2016, the number of trading standards officers had fallen by 56%. Three years on, that figure will be significantly worse. The 2017 CTSI workforce survey found that 43% of services report that they cannot deal with the consumer detriment in their area, and 64% feel they cannot recruit or retain skills. The strain that this puts on your services and your ability to protect consumers is enormous. The average spend per head of population in 2017 was £1.69 per year. That is the equivalent of half the cup of coffee I brought on my way here today in a London coffee shop, I has to be said, or, as I know Leon Livermore likes to describe it, three own brand toilet rolls. Not quite sure why he chose that metaphor, but it does spell out that actually £1.69 is not a great deal. And what, is, what the government, and I suppose the public, is expecting for those three toilet rolls, it's expecting you, collectively, to tackle over £15 billion in consumer and business detriment. It's expecting you to protect legitimate businesses from being undercut by the dodgy dealers and the con artists, and it is expecting you to protect the most vulnerable in our communities from, become, from scams and exploitation by consumers. That's a big ask, and it runs directly contrary to the deregulation, better regulation mantra that we've heard so much about at the beginning of the decade. I think or at least I hope, that the tide has now turned, although maybe we should wait until we know the outcome of the Conservative Party leadership election and who emerges as the new Secretary of State and who is in the, on their ministerial team. But now, maybe, we have moved to a recognition that what is required is good and proportionate regulation and that such an approach is needed by both the consumer and by businesses alike. There genuinely seems to be an, a shift in opinion. Perhaps it is prompted by issues like the Whirlpool product recall, but there's also a desire um, for much more robust enforcement in other areas, such as, for example, underage sales of knives. And the appalling tragedy that was Grenfell has led to an understanding that proper and effective enforcement is needed. And Brexit, if and when it happens, will bring additional challenges. Last week, the President of the United States promised us chlorinated chicken, and the desire by some 
to decouple the UK from the regulatory framework and protections of the EU will lead to even greater pressure on trading standards and other local regulatory services to protect our communities. And we all know the sorts of scammers and fraudsters who will crawl out of the woodwork and try to exploit the confusions and misunderstandings that will no doubt arise. All of this, of course, is made more complex by the changes in the trading standard in the trading landscape. The explosive growth of online services, uh, of online markets, personalised micro-pricing and targeting of advertising, and the rise of fulfilment houses. So this should not be the time for further cuts in trading standards budgets. Those expectations that government and the public currently have already outpace the resources to cover that, and that is before we take into account any of the challenges ahead. And we know local authorities will face further cuts in their overall budgets and increasing pressure on big-ticket items like social care and children's provision. But as with many other local authority services, recognition that there is a problem with lack of funding sadly does not promote the solution. Now, clearly, putting back the 50 or 60% taken out would be ideal. But I have to tell you that believing that that is probably just as likely and just as plausible as some of the more interesting policy proposals that emerge from leadership contenders over the weekend. Too often, government spokespeople seem to be in denial. They don't make the connection that if you decide to cut average local authority revenue support grants by 60% plus, there will be inevitable consequences on local services. You cannot just hide behind the fiction of local decision-making and pretend that it's the fault of local councillors that all the things that used to be provided are no longer provided. You cannot make bricks without straw. And it is naive, naive to pretend otherwise. You can't place greater obligations on local trading standards departments, more duties on local authorities, and expect they will actually get the work that is needed to deliver those. So we have, in practice, we have to focus on what might help. Now, the NTS model requires us to commission work from the local trading standards community, rather than trying to deliver it centrally. And that commissioning model works. It means government can see direct results for the investment that they get. And they can see the, the money that they put in, what it pays for, and what happens as a result of it. Commissioning also means that NTS can help maintain and build capacity, competence, and resilience at the local level. But too often government becomes frustrated because they can't always deliver the local answers they want. So we see elements of work being removed from trading standards uh, and put into, cent into central, often more expensive, specialist units. So while there is no doubt a good justification for creating a PIPCO or a food crime unit in the FSA, 
we have to be aware that each time this happens, it takes another chunk out of your local services. And it also means it's more difficult to get member interest in what you do, and the availability of competent staff is diminished. And ultimately, it undermines the vision of a comprehensive local trading standards service. Now, I'm trying, I'm really trying, not to be political here. And NTS, of course, is not a lobbying uh, body. Though that doesn't mean that I might not make some comments and uh, observations to relevant ministers and senior officials as I bump into them in the much derided Westminster village. Quite rightly, ACTSO has pressed hard to prevent further removal of services, most recently in relation to animal health. But I fear there may be more to come. And I would ask any central government colleagues in the audience who see centralisation as a simple solution to their problem to have the decency to leave their silo for a bit and consider the implications more widely on all of your services and your profession and the brilliant work that you can still provide. If NTS has shown anything, it has shown what the trading standards community can achieve together when it is given the resources to do so. In my personal view, commissioning is a better horse to back than larger strategic units for trading standards. Let's be clear, to have larger units uh, would require wholesale local government reorganisation. That would not be cheap and is, very, is not, frankly, very likely given present political preoccupations. Similarly, shared services from the bottom up will not happen other than in a handful of local authorities. A few pop up and work well, but equally as many fail because their local authorities no longer support the model or a change of political control means that it's no longer appropriate. The only other option would be to remove trading standards altogether from local government and sit it under a central government agency. And given there is no single central government agency that with responsibility for the breadth of the work that you do, it will lead to the breakup of a comprehensive trading standard service. It would also require a costly national superstructure and sacrifice local accountability, local knowledge and local buy-in. And I'm pleased that as far as I can tell, that is not what is envisaged in the forthcoming white paper. I, I want, before I finish, I want to say just something more about national trading standards. Since we were fully operational, because of the work done by our individual teams based within local trading standards service and with our funding support, we have delivered a return on investment of almost £12 for every pound spent and successfully tackled the £785 million in detriment referred to by the Minister. A 12 to 1 ratio is a pretty good investment for the government money. The value of work was recognised by the National Audit Office and they particularly praised the way in which we had significantly improved the effectiveness of escalating and tackling abuses um, and issues that are, uh, that are regionally or nationally important. The success was uh, reiterated and reflected in the Consumer Green Paper, which alluded to strengthening the NTS model and giving us more powers. Now, we now anticipate a Consumer White Paper 
I noticed the minister didn't actually tell us when it might be coming, because uh, it was due this month, but, you know, things are busy at the moment. Uh, I'm, I am fully confident, however, that that white paper, when it arrives, will propose a change in the status of NTS. This is most welcome as a recognition that the system now works better than when it was split between local trading standards and the old Office of Fair Trading. It also clears up some issues relating to accountability that we have because we are neither a public body nor a legal entity. However, it does pose some risks. Bayes and other government departments have liked the fact that we could on occasions be fleet of foot and respond quickly to issues that were emerging. They liked the fact that we had the support of the trading standards community and were able readily to work with other parts of the consumer protection landscape. Government, however, have to be careful that in creating a new NTS, they do not inadvertently throw away the strengths of what we have at present. That means that the new NTS must remain flexible and dynamic in terms of deploying resources and responding uh, to rapidly changing demands, particularly in relation to big cases. So I say to Bayes, please do not saddle us with the cumbersome processes and procedures of a central government department. It also is critical that we remain part of the trading standards community and not separate from it, and that we continue to have heads of trading standards at the heart of our decision-making. Currently, all decisions are taken by the board, which comprises only heads of trading standards, with every local authority getting a say in who represents them on the board. The only exception is my role as chair, and I don't have a vote. So it's owned and decisions are owned by trading standards. I also believe it's essential that it remains a commissioning model, which effectively links together the local and the regional and the national and capitalises on the advantage of all those parts of the system. Without this, it will be just another central agency, and the danger is that it will split the response rather than improve it. Nevertheless, a new enhanced role for NTS, if done right, will address two key issues. One about data sharing, and the second, provide NTS an ability to institute proceedings in its own reign if we were unable to commission a prosecution through an individual local authority due to the high risks involved in the case. And it is a measure of the support of the system to date that in seven years we have never not been able to get a case taken. However, the risk grows. We have a number of cases that have had costs rising to over a million pounds. The average time from opening a case to its fruition in court is now four years. Legal costs can be huge, and side litigation, such as judicial reviews, actions for loss of business, invasions of privacy, essentially what the people concerned are complaining about is that we're interfering with their rights to be criminal. But nonetheless, they use the courts to do precisely that. And that's growing particularly amongst the better-resourced, larger and nastier defendants. We have one ongoing case that has already been going for four years. That has already cost £3 million, and the key individual has yet to be charged. 
because he continues to pursue a whole stream of side civil cases that delay the criminal fraud one. So my hope is that we will see the white paper published in the next few months and that when it does appear, it will recognise the enormous value already provided by trading standards, that it will build on that base and that above all, it will not accidentally pull apart what we have created together. Ideally, of course, we would see a full and proper investment in all your services at local level. Achieving that may be slightly harder even than Brexit. But I have to say, after my experience working with you over the years, and I've worked with a range of professionals in my various roles, uh, prisons, police, the counter-terrorism agencies and so on, I can honestly say that trading standards are at least their equal in terms of enthusiasm, professionalism, and desire to do the right thing by consumers. So thank you. Thank you for all you do and for all your support. David Riley is the chair of CTSI. We sat down with him to grab a few minutes during his busy symposium schedule to get his views on the themes he believes dominate trading standards at the moment. Well, as always, I think the symposium the, is the opportunity for everyone to come along and, and get up to, up to date with all developments that are going on within the training standards profession. But also, I think it allows us to debate the, the major issues facing training standards, which uh, have been unfortunately similar over the last few years, which is the, the constant cuts in resources, the threats to uh, our ability to deliver uh, for the public and business. Um, and of course, that, that's it. And, and I think a couple of the plenary sessions highlight that very well. The one today about the uh, is the system fit for purpose, is it broken, etc. And I thought uh, that crystallised it very well, certainly with the National Trading Standards, with CMA, which, and having an alternative view on, on how it should be delivered, and of course, uh, our views from our Scottish friends who have been through the mill a couple of times on that, I know. Uh, and also tomorrow around how well trading standards and how fit are we to respond to major crises. And I think that will be interesting because we have the office of uh, the new Office of Product Safety and Standards there. We've got the Food Standards Agency. Uh, and then we've got uh, some practitioners who will be able to give a balanced view on on whether we're fit, because I'm, I'm not always sure that government realise really how bad a uh, state some, some local authorities are. And it's not just trading standards we're talking about, but the whole local authority landscape. I mean, we, we've always had good partnerships with trading standards because we're a fairly small profession. That's, I think, how we, how we work very well. Uh, we have good relationships, good partnerships. And so being able to invite them to... A symposium like this to debate the, the sort of things of interest to us and to them and to perhaps open their eyes to, to some of the problems that uh, we're facing just so that they're aware of it. As David Riley mentioned, one of the key speakers on day two was Graham Russell, Chief Executive of the Office for Product Safety and Standards. His speech about whether regulators are prepared to meet potential major crises in the future followed a short video presentation which provided a hard-hitting summary of recent big stories in consumer protection, including foot and mouth, the horsemeat scandal and the tragic events at Grenfell Tower two years ago. When I got to Brighton yesterday morning, it was raining very heavily. 
I indulged myself in a taxi, which is not something I often do, but I got a taxi to avoid arriving here looking too much like a drowned rat. And uh, the taxi driver said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm here for a conference. He said, oh, we have some exciting conferences here. What's yours? I said, oh, it's trading standards. He said, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> and I thought, well, how interesting. He went on. He said, that's really important, but it's a bit dull. And I wondered to myself, thinking about this video that we've just watched, what he would have made of that video. Would he have thought that was dull? And I guess the challenge for us, and I include my office, myself, with you in this, is how we get the debate that's at the heart of that video into the public square, into the public conversation. When I listened to what we were saying yesterday, conversations that I've had since then, I think too often we talk to ourselves about ourselves. We talk too often about dividing up a fixed cake or even a shrinking cake. And we say, well, this money that should have gone to, this lo to local authorities is going to national or it's going to this part of the um, priority set rather than this part. We talk too much about cutting up a, a cake and not enough about growing the size of the cake. And it seems to me that the content, the material, the information about the importance of what trading standards do it's too important to simply keep within this room. And so our challenge as leaders in the profession, leaders in the wider world of regulation, is to take that debate out to those who make decisions. I'm sure as we debate how we respond to regulatory crises, one of the things we'll want to say is that you need a bedrock of competency, you need expertise, you need frontline ability. And if you don't invest in that, then you won't be ready for crises when they occur. But how do we persuade opinion formers? How do we persuade those who hold the purse strings of that? You could easily look at me and say, well, that's your job because you're in national government. But actually, I don't accept that. I think it's a job we share, and it's a job we all have to work on together. So that was the first thing that struck me about the video, how important the work is, how important it is we have the right conversations with the right people. The second thing that struck me was quite how varied that work is. Even in the issues that we looked at there, we looked at animal health, we looked at food, we looked at products, we looked at complex building regulation, all of which trading standards have an input into, and some of them they have a major role. And that's quite a spread, and one of the challenges that you face is the spread of trading standards responsibility. But of course that's also one of the benefits. Having a single point of contact in a local authority area where a vast range of regulatory issues can be dealt with is really important for local businesses, for local, the local economy, but also for local consumers to have confidence they're properly protected. A comprehensive service looking across all those pieces is actually an advantage as well as a challenge. But the variety in that video isn't just a variety of different topics, it's also a variety of um, different approaches. Yes, in a sense, there's always somebody breaking the law at the heart of each of those challenging issues. But actually, they're not just about people breaking the law, they're about complex supply chains. They're about victims within that supply chain all the way through. If you take any of those, you can look at a complex web of activity, a complex web of what happened. And yes, there will be somebody somewhere who hasn't complied with the law, but it's not just about compliance with the law. It's also about supporting people to ensure better outcomes. And I think that complexity is a second thing that I take away from the video. The third thing I take away is it felt like a bit of a life story of my time in regulation. It was in the mid-1990s I was working as a trade and standards officer and I was asked to set up a team on animal health in Staffordshire. And at that time, animal health, or the responsibilities we would take on, were enforced by a variety of people. The police issued licenses, the district council gave some permissions, the county council gave other permissions, 
the RSPCA did enforcement. There was a lovely chap who went around schools talking about rabies. And these responsibilities were spread right across the area. And I was asked to set up a team, bring people together and enforce that. I said, well, how will I know what to do? Because we didn't cover that when I studied the DTS. And they said, you can go to Weston. So I went to Weston for five days. Now, if you'd been to Manchester, five days at Weston was like in-depth teaching, I tell you. I probably had more lectures in those five days than I've been three years at, Western, at Manchester. So five days at Weston. At the end of that, I was ready for anything. And I came back and I lectured the local farmers on the fact that their trailers were now the wrong size and they couldn't take horses in them anymore and they threw rocks at me. And so we set off on animal health. It wasn't very long after that that I was, had a rude awakening. The one thing they told me at Weston was, you've got to prepare for lots of things but you don't need to worry about foot and mouth. They showed us a video from 1958, I think it was, of men in raincoats going round, how terrible it was. This is one thing that's not going to happen. Of course, as we've just been reminded, that's exactly what did happen. And our small team, which was dealing with about 50 inquiries a year, went to 3,000 inquiries a week. And we had staff out, not just from Trade and Standards, but other parts of the County Council, enforcing regulation, enforcing some pretty difficult requirements on real people. And the impact that had on the farming community of Staffordshire, which is a major part of Staffordshire, was quite significant. I learned a lot from that time. I learned about the resilience of people, the resilience of the team, the importance of working together. But it was a major impact on my experience of regulation. By the time we came to Horsegate, I was working for central government and um, much less involved in that, but working a little bit with Food Standards Agency to support some of the work they did and to provide a source of... Um, of conversation with them about some of those things, but more watching that and seeking to advise on that and support that than, than being involved in it. But a massive issue for the UK on top of other food issues that we've seen. And then in 2016, we had just take, we just took responsibility for product safety policy when there was a fire at Shepherd's Bush involving a Whirlpool tumble dryer, which of course, as we've just seen from the video, was already subject to action by the company in conjunction with Peterborough Trading Standards. And so we took that on just at that difficult time when there were big questions being asked about what does it mean to have a product that can be made safer. There's five million of them, and they're in people's homes. And we've been grappling with that since then, and it's partly one of the things that led to the setting up of the Office of Product Safety and Standards. And so I'm pleased to be able to tell Leon that contrary to his quote in 2016, government is no longer silent, there is something being done, and we've just um, have carried out a review and announced the results of that review, and we're continuing to work on that topic at the moment. There's not much more I can say about that at the moment, but there are other things happening. I'm not going to quite do one minute, but can I have two? Um, it wasn't long after that when the tragedy of Grenfell Tower happened, and you've seen the video there, you won't need reminding, 72 people lost their lives, in a situation which I suspect we didn't think would happen in the UK. I don't think we thought that that sort of regulatory failure could lead to that tragedy. Now, of course, the inquiry is ongoing, we can't say too much about where that might go to, but it's the second anniversary this Friday, and government is committed to ensuring that the mistakes that have been made are not made again. As part of that, I was responsible for a team that was looking into one aspect of a very complex situation. We dealt with one aspect, which was whether the fridge freezer that was said to be at the heart of that fire was faulty, and whether those fridge freezers should be withdrawn and whether should pe people should stop using them. And if you remember, it was very hot at that time, and I remember chairing a meeting of scientists from across government, where on the one hand, a precautionary principle said, if we're not sure about these fridge freezers, we should tell people to stop using them. And on the other hand, experts from Public Health England, Food Standards Agency and others said, if we tell people to stop using fridges in, the, in this heat wave, 
then whatever the consequences of the electrical safety of that product, we are going to see people impacted by food issues, medicines issues, and all sorts of issues associated with not having fridges. So we've got to really grapple with managing these risks. And that was quite an intense period, as many of you will know, if you're involved in that. Since then, we've set up the office, and we are building capacity to deal with those things. But when I look at how we're building that capacity, firstly, I'm, I'm, we're looking at working with you and providing training, support, capacity building, access to testing. We think it's really important that people working at the front line, you and your teams, have access to all the information that you need, the support you need, and the ability to do the job well. And so our first priority has been to ensure that frontline trained standards officers have the support they need. We've also started work on some of our priority areas, and again, very much working with you and working um, at locally as well as nationally. This is what we aim to achieve, and it's an aim that I think we aim to achieve together. A trusted product regulation system. It's important that people have trust in the way that we regulate. Recognising scarce resources, recognising we can't always do all that we want to do. Do people trust the system we work together to create? Does it protect people and places? Is it fair to business? Does it create a competitive environment? And can we measure those outcomes of safety and public confidence? Because if we can measure outcomes, if we can show what we're doing, then we start to win that discussion with those opinion formers and those resource holders. This is what we would like you to do with us. We'd like you to support some of those things. We'd like you to engage with us about those campaigns. We'd like you to share your data with us. We'd like to use the funding that we've made available. We made half a million available last year. It wasn't all used. I know that's because it was the first year. We've made 600,000 available this year. We'd really like to see all of that used and ideally demands for more. And we'd like to use the training programs that we run with CTSI. We do think it's possible to deal with national issues in a way that protects people, but we can only do that if we work together. To close this week's podcast, we spoke to Chris Armstrong, a member of the CTSI College of Fellows, and Margaret Brotheridge, the daughter of Den Brotheridge, a Weights and Measures inspector who was the first Allied casualty on D-Day. Chris began by talking about the sacrifice made by Den Brotheridge and many of his brothers and sisters in trading standards in the two world wars. Dan Brotheridge was uh, an inspector of weights and measures uh, in Buckinghamshire before he uh, swapped his uh, beam scale for a, a Lee Enfield rifle, went to war. Sadly, was the, uh, the first casualty when they, uh, he led his men in, into battle, having been dropped from uh, a great height in one of the gliders, uh, one of the first, in fact, the first, I think it was, to land there. Um, and we, as part of our research into other members of the profession, who died in both world wars, uh, we found out about Den and uh, it, all a remarkable story. Uh, and we've commissioned a plaque in commemoration of all those people, which is now in our head office in Basildon in Essex. And uh, some of the members have been across to the battlefields, particularly at Pegasus Bridge, to look into and research those. And one of the yeah, latest yeah. was an ex-serving member of the, the now called the Rifles uh, or the Green Jackets, went to lay a wreath in Ranville Cemetery. They, they weren't all called weights and measures inspecting in those days, but yes, forerunners of trading standards. Uh, and there were many hundreds of them that, that died throughout both world wars, but uh, particularly uh, the Second World War. And uh, as I say, just as part of the commemoration yes. for Den and uh, all his other colleagues, yeah. uh, the colleagues have done that and invited uh, Margaret in. We're very pleased to see I'm today, to be here. Um, to, uh, to at least you know show that we were certainly interested in, in uh, how our colleagues managed all them years ago. I am amazed at the uh, at the work you do. 
I don't think people realize they see this blank that says, you know, trading standards. But what is, um, I've thought more than anything is that it's a place where there's truth and honesty and, and courage and more self-sacrifice at times when dealing with issues. But there's also a very big an enormous amount of support and real support. And that is so important. And when I was over in France, uh, when a few years ago, when I met people who knew my father, they said, oh, he was one of us and we would have gone wherever he went. He was one of us and, we, and he encouraged us. And, and I see all that here now. It's so important that you encourage each other to do what is a very difficult job. So I've been delighted to be part of it. Well, that's it for another episode. Huge thanks to all of those who spoke to us at the symposium and shared their ideas, insights and stories. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back again in a fortnight's time with more from the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye.